The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for today's show slash podcast. Uh, it's been a couple of months since I've been in uh, the Doctor's Lounge studio behind the microphone, and uh, I may be back a lot more, as it turns out, and I'm certainly happy for that to happen. I got a call from Dr. Hal Schertz, the regular and by far and away the most consistent over time host of the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio, and he kindly asked that I participate a bit more, do a few more shows, and uh, I'm certainly happy and grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, I did one show about three months ago, but before that, it's been about three years since I've been here, and uh, I've kind of missed it. I'm glad to be back, and I'm happy that you're listening. Uh, the three months time between the last podcast and this one uh, has given me some time to think and hopefully learn some things. Uh, I tried to get some feedback from some folks after the uh, podcast in January, and I learned something very important. Um, a mistake that I have been making all along, going all the way back to June of 2014, which is nine years ago. We're coming up on the anniversary, the ninth anniversary of our very first Doctor's Lounge podcast, which I think was something like June 12th, 2014, something like that. I guess Facebook will remind me here in, in uh, 10 days or so when that day comes up, and then I'll remember the date exactly. But for now, I think we're close enough. But uh, I learned something uh, from some friends who had listened to that show, uh, something important, which was that I think I've been making a pretty bad mistake all along in the way I've been doing these podcasts, which is that I push information out too fast. Apparently, I never figured out the difference between a college lecture and a podcast. And so folks were telling me, folks I really like and trust and admire said, good show, but but uh, I felt like I had to stop every two minutes and take notes. And that's not what a podcast is for, as you know better than I do. This is more of a of a fireside chat kind of format, something a little more relaxing, something with a little less bandwidth, if you will, um, more storytelling, less fact reporting. So I'm going to try and do that. We'll see how that how that works out. So today, as I record this, actually a couple of days before this uh, airs on the 8th, uh, this is November 5th, or November 5th, listen to me, this is June 5th, but it's related to November 5th because we are exactly 17 months from the 2024 presidential election. So we have 17 months to build a narrative, build a train of thought on how best to think about healthcare and uh, uh, this is desperately needed, and uh, this is my first storytelling. We'll see how this goes. But going back to 2020, um, we were very busy. Uh, those of us who are board members at the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, we were very busy advising folks as the 2020 election drew near. We were pretty busy. Dr. Lee Gross was really busy, far busier than me, but we were both doing things. And then the election occurred. Uh, and it was a huge disappointment to us, not because of who won and who lost. It really doesn't have much to do with that, to be brutally honest. 
It had to do with the terrible job that the entire election process did with health care policy. Neither candidate, neither party gave a whole lot of thought to what was health care policy. And this became apparent to me during the third and final presidential debate when the moderator asked both candidates how they would approach health care. Donald Trump went first and went into a recycled pitch about repealing Obamacare, right? That was a good pitch in 2016 because we were only three years into the full implementation of Obamacare. But in 2020, it was old. It was tired. It was recycled. It had been tried once. They had tried to repeal Obamacare once, but they failed. And to recycle the same idea again, I thought was terribly short-sighted. Then Joe Biden said correctly, well, Mr. Trump, you don't have a plan. And that's true. Except the sad truth is he didn't have a plan either. The best he could come up with was to improve Obamacare, to evolve Obamacare, which again, doesn't say very much. That's not a bad intellectual starting point, I suppose, but it doesn't really, by the eve of a presidential election, there should be something more developed than that. There should be a to-do list. There should be a, a proposed bill. There should be something that there's something more to sink your teeth into besides those two sort of vague, overcooked, overbaked, overaged ideas. And after that election, I thought to myself, before 2024, we need to give a great deal of thought and therefore a great deal of time, and I hope 17 months is enough, as to what is going on in healthcare. Analyze where we've come, how we got to where we are, because without those two things, there's no way that you can think intelligently about fixing it. So how do we think intelligently about fixing it? Well, the, the show that I did in January attempted to talk about how you fix it, but I made the dreadful mistake of trying to compress a huge amount of information, a hundred years of history into a single one hour podcast. And that was dumb. I was dumb. I've been dumb lots of times. That's one of them. A big one because I only had one show to do in several months, one show in three years, and I kind of blew it by pushing it all into, into one podcast, which is not the way to do it. So we're going to try to expand this and take a little more time and a little more thought and take a deep breath and go, okay, let's, let's take that thing and unpack it a little more. All the information I tried to stuff into an hour, unpack that a bit more and try to come up with some bite-sized pieces and then expand further. Right? We've got a lot more to talk about now than we did three months ago. We have two new healthcare bills that have come uh, out uh, and into the hopper for Congress to contemplate ahead of the elections. So there will be some good things to sink our teeth into because our starting point is dismal. Our starting point is dismal. At the moment, we really only have, not counting the two bills that just came out, which I think Dr. Hal and Dr. Lee Gross talked about last week, there are only three options on the table, which we talked about. We talked about two of them. One it is to repeal Obamacare, all right, and that's a recycled idea. The other is to improve Obamacare, again, defining everything in terms of Obamacare, which is dumb. Uh, and the third one, which we haven't talked about yet, which is kind of the elephant in the room, is, is Medicare for all. Now, the phrase Medicare for all is one of the most brilliant marketing phrases that I have ever heard of. One of the most brilliant 
marketing ideas in the history of history. And it's a very dangerous idea if that's the only thing you consider. And uh, and yet it sounds very attractive when all you think about is the one phrase. Fortunately, we've got more to think about, right? Uh, uh, Senator uh, Bill Cassidy and Representative Pete Sessions from Texas, Cassidy from Louisiana, have each introduced bills that these guys talked about. And we'll unpack those more in future shows. I'm going to have a bunch of shows hopefully here in the next few months. And we'll be able to unpack those things and give a whole lot more detail. But first, I want to just take a deep breath and talk about how we're going to approach this extremely complex problem. Right, we're going to come up with the rules of engagement. And I forget how many rules I came up here to talk about. And I'm trying to scroll my little thing. Here we go. What do we got? Six rules of engagement. Uh, I'm going to try to follow these, but I promise you uh, I will break my own rules somewhere along the line because this whole issue is so complex. The first rule and probably the biggest rule and probably the one I'll screw up the most is this idea that we see with with other political issues. Uh, and I think that the term is presentism and it is the the concept that we judge historical figures based on present day standards, right? And the most common one that we we see talked about is is our founding fathers who did a lot of things um, that uh, that we would find deplorable by today's standards. And I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to get lost in the weeds over it. But I think you know what I'm talking about. The idea that the, our founding fathers were bad people because they did certain things which by modern standards we find very deplorable, uh, very uh, unpleasant. And, um, and so therefore they're bad people, right? That's why we're tearing down statues and we're renaming schools and doing all this ridiculous stuff. But it turns out that presentism can be applied in a much shorter time frame. And so I'm going to claim the right up front to evolve, the right to evolve a point of view, the right to say, you know what? What I said in 2009 was dumb. It was wrong. And I reserve the right to learn, recognize mistakes, learn from your mistakes, and evolve your point of view so that the point of view that I had last year or two years ago or five years ago is not necessarily exactly the same point that I have, a point of view that I have right now. And that's not flip-flopping. It's not flip-flopping because you have to learn. You have to be intellectually honest. You have to learn things. You have to incorporate them into your point of view and allow your point of view to revolve. Classic example. When we first started doctors, started marching on Capitol Hill in 2009 in response to the litigation of Obamacare. We all put our white jackets on. We all marched into the Capitol. We all pounded our fist on the table and said, get the government out of my health care. I don't want the government in health care. I don't want the government in health care as a patient. I don't want the government in health care as a doctor. And, uh, and, and uh, that, that's the end of it. That's, that's all. That, that, that was our demand. Well, that's unrealistic in a lot of ways. Number ways, number one is you're never going to get the government completely out of health care. And the second is that it's sort of, it puts people at odds. It makes people automatically oppose you when they don't even know what you really stand for. Uh, it's, it's not the point that you want to lead with, even though factually, yes, shrinking the government's footprint in health care, I believe is part of the solution, at least at the moment. And we have to evolve. So, you know, it's no longer our leading point to pound our fist on the table and say that we need to get the government out of health care because 
there has to be some involvement, right? We know, you know, as a country, we have made a commitment to support people who cannot afford their health care, either because of age or poverty or disability. We have government-driven safety net programs in place that need to remain in place, of course. And so the idea of completely getting the government out of the healthcare is, is a non-starter in its purest form, which is to completely get government out of healthcare. Uh, it doesn't work. And someone who's thoughtful knows that that's true. So for us to lead with that point in 2009 reflects our naivete at the time. And remember, doctors really hadn't gotten involved with healthcare policy before that point. We stayed at home and we went to med school and went to residency and worked 100 hours a week and took care of our patients and continued to work 100 hours a week. And, you know, it wasn't until the moment that uh, Dr. Hal uh, spoke with a nationwide syndicated radio talk show host and who said, where are the doctors on this? And at that point, we had the epiphany and we got doctors into healthcare, but Lord knows we had a lot to learn. I think we've learned some of it. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Next segment coming up. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak back with you behind the Doctor's Lounge microphone on America's Web Radio, segment two. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we have more to talk about, of course. Uh, at the end of the last segment, we were talking about our new project, our 17-month, 45-week, so maybe I get 20 shows, um, project where we try to reestablish a more thoughtful and more productive narrative on healthcare policy. How did we get to where we are? How do we decide where we want to be? And then how do we get from where we are to where we want to be? And we were starting with sort of the new rules of engagement and sort of talking about some things in advance because you can predict how critics will treat what we have to say and we try to preempt that by sort of thinking about things ahead of time. And the first thing we were talking about was this idea that who you are and what you think isn't constant through all of time. And that things you say back in 2009, like we said, like get the government out of healthcare, completely out of healthcare, 
was kind of naive. And we've evolved beyond that through 13 or 14 years of study and discourse and discussions that we're better now at what we do than we were back then. Of course, who would expect anything less if you're actually being honest and trying to learn as you go? And what that means is as time passes and as this narrative progresses over the next 17 months, we will contradict ourselves. And that's okay, as long as we acknowledge the contradiction and explain that we know more now than we did then. So, of course, we contradict ourselves. And in the modern political climate, that's seen as a weakness. That's seen as flip-flopping, right? Dr. K, how can you say X when last year you said Y or five years ago you said Y? Well, because I'm smarter now than I was. We'll all be smarter now. And so even the things that we say today or tomorrow or next week will hopefully be updated as we continue to conduct the narrative and we continue to learn from people who disagree with us and we get to a place that's better later on than it is now. And we're always learning and we're always evolving. That means that we will be contradicting ourselves and that's fine. So the first principle here is to avoid presentism, which is the idea that everything that you interpret for all of time is all looked through the uh, lens of today's values. And, uh, you know, we know from some other examples we talked about in the prior segment, um, you know, what kind of problems that can lead to. So we're going to acknowledge that uh, ahead of time. The second is to talk about the idea of being non- partisan about this. And that sounds very trite, right? Everybody is nonpartisan. Everybody is bipartisan. And it's it's very uh, cliche. It's very trite. Uh, so I'm going to try to put a spin on it that's a little bit unique and a little bit different. And I'm going to go back to this whole storytelling concept, right? We talked about in the beginning of segment one, I said, look, I, I my podcasts are too much like lectures and not enough like conversations. So what's the difference between a lecture and a conversation? Well, one of the things is storytelling perhaps. So you want stories? I got stories. Let's talk about stories. Um, and this is a very big story for us in the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, and it has to do with direct primary care or what we thought was our approach to direct primary care. And it goes back to this thing that I've already disavowed a couple of times, which was our mantra when we first went to Washington in 2009 and we slammed our fist on the table and we said, get the government out of our healthcare, get the government out of our exam room. And we took this to great lengths. Um, we had even contemplated a, uh, a campaign that talked about um, a third fictitious person in the exam room. It was uh, – I, I don't even remember. We had a name for it, you know, something that was sort of a, a marketing thing. And we had really taken this, you know, government in the exam room concept uh, to, to great lengths. And I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I mean certainly many times it feels when you're trying to take care of a patient that the third-party payer is in the way, that regulations are in the way. So it remains a frustration. It's not factually inaccurate. It's just that it sends the wrong message about what you're trying to accomplish. And so uh, when we did our first few um, direct primary care educational meetings, um, we had assumed 
it turns out incorrectly, we had assumed that direct primary care was fundamentally a conservative idea, right? It kind of fit in with the whole get the government out of our health care concept. And and so we assumed it was conservative. And as such, when we got keynote speakers, we got conservative speakers. And one of our first conservative speakers was the late Herman Cain, got rest his soul, a great guy, uh, a wonderful radio talk show personality in Atlanta who was fundamentally conservative. And after that meeting, we, to our great surprise, discovered that the uh, attendees' reaction was uh, was negative uh, with a lot of people that uh, that they didn't like his politics and and then we realized with a great shock uh, that th- that our idea of direct primary care really wasn't a fundamentally conservative idea it was a bipartisan or non-partisan idea and then when we sort of looked at the uh, the the political makeup of the folks uh, that were attending our meetings not by any sort of official means but just by conversations and getting to know people we discovered how naive and, and dumb we were that we assumed that the direct primary care was only a conservative idea um, that was actually a, a much more universal idea which is amazing to me we didn't even understand the politics of our own message I mean, how in the hell does that happen? I, I, anyone? I, I don't know. But uh, it, it also made us realize that we had in direct primary care, we had touched on a very, very powerful idea. And it turns out over the ensuing several years since then that direct primary care has taken off. I mean, it has really uh, succeeded, uh, exceeded expectations and is doing extremely well. It's in very, very high demand. And, and, and it's a universal idea, which is a very pleasant shock. And, but also made us realize that, that we need to grow up. I mean, we need to understand what we've got here. Again, we are trying to learn from experience. We're trying to understand as much as we can. Um, but it, it does, I think, give a, uh, some validity and some sort of genuine spin to the normally sort of trite and, and cliche idea of, of nonpartisan or bipartisanship in that we're not, we're not really interested in asking, you know, what would Reagan do? What would Trump do? What would Obama do? What would Ted Kennedy do? Uh, we're just trying to start with the fundamental ideas and forget about the labels and come up with a dialogue that really engages folks of all political backgrounds. There's no other way to solve the problem, right? We've been beating away at this problem for over 10 years with this partisan approach, and it's gotten to the point where we almost forget what the original issue is. And all that matters is to politically beat the other side. All we all we care about is vanquishing our enemies instead of solving problems. And that hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for decades, even going back before Obamacare was passed. Um, that approach just doesn't work, and there's no point in wasting precious time trying to work that way. It, it doesn't make any sense to, for one side to ram something down the other side's throat just because they can. Um, that didn't work with Obamacare, and it, it's not going to work if the Republicans get their chance to do the same thing. So we need to somehow get above that. And that's not easy, right? I can sit here behind a microphone and lecture all I want. Uh, there's going to be times, again, when we make that mistake and in spite of, you know, all this pious preaching I'm doing. But, uh, you know, it, it leads us to the next 
uh, sort of concept here, which is again, humility, right? Any fundamental solution here is going to be a mosaic of ideas coming from multiple sources, um, some of which we may find uncomfortable. And that's okay. That's the way it's going to happen. If we're going to get buy-in from more than half the country, right? If we're going to get buy-in from more than your favorite political party, regardless of which one it is, then this isn't going to work, right? If I stand up in front of an audience and I say, rah, rah, Obamacare, I get the support of half. I get angry shouts from the other half. If I say down with Obamacare, same thing, except the sides flip-flop. Ain't going to work. Let's find some, let's find a better way. So let's talk about that better way. Now, the first thing is we, we let's question our assumptions here. Um, we assume, right? Obamacare assumed. In fact, every piece of healthcare legislation that came before it assumed the idea that Congress can solve this problem. All Congress and the White House have to do is come up with that magic piece of legislation which turns a healthcare system with a lot of drawbacks into nirvana, uh, into paradise. Right? That's what the folks who pushed Obamacare would tell you back in the day. And, you know, again, Obamacare is not unique, right? There are a dozen pieces of legislation that have passed between 1966 and now, and none of them have moved us closer to solving the problem. So why would we naively think that the same approach is going to help now? So what do we do instead? Well, we do two things. One is instead of one sweeping piece of legislation that's going to solve everything, I think we need an incremental approach. Right? It took us a hundred years to get to where we are. Right? Why a hundred years? You go back and pull the old podcast from January. I'm sure we'll go over the points again. But a uh, hundred years ago is when the first health insurance company or, or arrangement contract was created. That was 1929. It was in Dallas, Texas, between the Dallas Independent School District and Baylor Hospital, right? It was 50 cents per member per month. First insurance policy. There's a lecture on that. I'm sure we'll go over those points again. But it took us a hundred years to get here. One single, sweeping, miraculous piece of legislation is not going to instantaneously extract us from the problem. So let's stop trying to think in those terms and think in terms of something that is a little more incremental, that is a little more uh, careful, that's a little more deliberate, um, that's a little more avoiding the the problem of, of, of overthinking or trying to guess what happens from steps A, B, and C and immediately coming up with D, E, and F and one, two, and three. Let's, let's go incrementally with this because it's complicated, right? Healthcare is by far the most complicated issue that we face in American policy just because of the, the history behind it, the complexity of delivering healthcare, the expense in delivering healthcare. So let's, let's act a little humble. Let's act incrementally. I mean, think about it. What's what's the approval rating of Congress? Like 15%, 10%, something like that? I mean, is is an intellect, is, is a body of people, which as a group, and again, I'm not commenting on individuals, but as a group, 
a body that is as intellectually challenged as Congress, what are the odds are that they're going to fix this? Probably pretty low. We'll talk about it a little bit more in the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right, and you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Back to the Doctor's Lounge, segment three here in America's Web Radio. Dr. Mike Karuchak at your service. Glad for you to be here. Glad you're listening. Thank you very much for your time. We'll continue with our narrative on our, our ground rules, our rules of engagement regarding healthcare reform. Um, and we had pretty much uh, gotten through the list. Um, the, I wanted to tell one more story about evolution of thinking because this is by far and away the point I hit the hardest is that we have to allow ourselves the indulgence of allowing our thinking to evolve, allowing ourselves to think differently tomorrow than we are today and, and differently even the, the day after that. And there was one story I wanted to throw in there. Again, I'm trying to be good about this. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to up my game and talk more about stories and less about hard facts. So uh, let's talk about science and we can talk about, you know, the concept of settled science, right? We've seen that in some other contexts, but right a uh, hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, hundreds of years ago, many hundreds of years ago, of course, everyone thought the earth was flat. And then thinking evolved, and there was proof then that the world was round. And then uh, this guy named Einstein came along and talked about what round objects do to each other in space, right? The conventional thinking with, you know, physics by Isaac Newton, Newtonian physics was that two objects floating in space exerted a gravitational pull on each other. We don't know why, but they just pulled on each other. And if one mass orbits the other mass, it just travels in a, in a curved path, usually not a perfectly circular path, but a curved path. And the path was curved because gravity was constantly pulling on this object. Well, then this guy named Einstein came along and said, no, actually objects don't travel in curved paths. 
right? The object that's being orbited actually bends space. And although you look at the object and seeing it traveling in a curved orbit around the Earth, such as the moon, and in fact, that's not true. When the moon orbits the Earth, it's actually traveling in a straight line through curved space. So the point is, thinking actually evolves. Science evolves. Um, there's no such thing as settled science. And if you're intellectually honest, thinking always changes through time. And I think that concept applies to what we're talking about, to a lot of different things. And we won't go to all those things, of course, but I think it applies to healthcare policy. I don't think any of us can claim a mastery uh, of healthcare policy. Just like no, no honest doctor is going to say that they have completely mastered his or her craft. All right. You're always a student. You're always learning. You're always looking for better ways to do things and to outgrow the way you've done things before. And I think that the same applies in healthcare policy, right? We don't so much have to disavow what's been done with the past, but simply to acknowledge that we have the ability and the obligation to evolve beyond it. And I don't think that should be a problem. So just like we're not, we're not, contra- we're not flip flopping when we say, you know, a thousand years ago they thought the earth was flat and now we know it's round and now we know that our round earth bends space time to allow objects that orbit to travel in what looks like a curved path. That's not, we're not flip flopping. We're just learning. So enough of that. Let's move on to the next topic of interest, which is to sort of talk about the concept of insurance, right? If you if you listen to the show in January, and I forgive you if you didn't, but if you listen to the show in January, we talked about the history of healthcare insurance, right? We've we've referred to that already here, that the first insurance policy was almost 100 years ago, 1929, uh, when the Dallas Independent School District contacted with, contracted with Baylor Hospital for 50 cents per member per month for I believe, if memory serves, up to two weeks of hospitalization per year. Um, what happens with insurance? What's up with insurance? We need to understand insurance if we're going to understand what we do with it. So, again, I'm going to go to stories, right? I'm going to try to – we're going to do this more like a fireside chat and storytelling than ramming a bunch of hard facts down your throat. So I got a story for you. You want stories? I got stories. Here's a story for you. This is back in medical school. Um, I went to Duke Med between 1984 and 1988, and I drove a little Honda Accord. Just a little four-cylinder Econobox. Four cylinders, four doors, uh, you know, a very no-frills kind of car, as you might expect. Well, one day I came out to the parking lot in my apartment, and somebody crunched my fender. Big, you know, the, the, the fender was decimated. And I was like, oh, this is great. I don't have the time or the money to deal with this. Well, fortunately, uh, the person who'd hit my car left a note. I mean, how often does that happen? I left a note and said, I hit your car. Here's, you know, my phone number, call me, we'll get this resolved, do the insurance thing. So we got the insurance involved. My car went off to the body shop to get fixed, right? So this was an insurance job. So a couple of days later, the guy from the body shop calls me and says, I got a deal for you. I got, I got a proposition for you, something to offer. I'm like, well, what's this all about? It says, look, your insurance pays for original equipment parts to replace your fender. Top of the line parts. He says, but I don't have to use top of the line parts. I can use crappy cheapy parts and 
you and I can split the difference, right? There's going to be a difference between what the insurance pays me for these parts and the amount of money I actually spend for cheapo parts. And I'll split the difference with you if you agree to do it. I said, no, no thanks. I want my car fixed right. And he said, okay, fine. And that was the end of it. And I got my car back and I'm hoping he didn't use crappy parts anyway, but it looked like it was repaired well enough to me. But the point is whenever you introduce insurance or a third-party payer to a business transaction, you create adverse incentives, right? Or perverse incentives as they are sometimes called. Right, the insurance, uh, the uh, the the mechanic, the body shop guy was incentivized, knowing that the insurance didn't really care. Right, they pay a certain amount of money for a claim, and they don't care what you do with the money. Right, in fact, you don't even have to repair your car. The insurance can issue you a check, and you can drive around with a you know, a wrecked car if it's drivable, and you can pocket the difference. They don't care. But that creates these incentives for fraud and whatnot. And car insurance is one of the most pure forms of insurance out there. And now uh, my son Andrew is struggling with a repair of his car because somebody clipped him on the highway. And it's taking forever. Why? Because you have a third-party payer involved and now the, the repair has been held up at various points for various reasons because the insurance company doesn't have documentation from the garage and the garage doesn't have documentation from the insurance and a repair that should have taken 10 to 14 days is now in its third month. And my son's getting tired of driving around his cheapo rental car, but it goes on. So insurance, even with something straightforward like car insurance, which is far less complex than health insurance, you end up with problems. You end up with issues. So let's look at different forms of insurance and look at what's good and what's bad about them so that we can talk about healthcare insurance a little more intelligently. So let's talk with the purest form of insurance, the type of insurance that is the least expensive to buy, that works the best. And I suspect, I'm not an insurance expert on these other forms of insurance, but I suspect the easiest to manage, which in my opinion would be life insurance. Life insurance satisfies sort of the four criteria that I know of that makes insurance pure. One is they are insuring against a single event. Right? Life insurance covers one thing, and that is if you die. It doesn't cover anything else. So the scope of coverage is very narrow. It is a single event, and it's only one event. Right? You have that event occurs. Your beneficiaries get one payment. Then you don't pay premiums anymore. The relationship is over. You're dead. Your beneficiaries get the money. That's the end of it. Right. And it's only, it is solely a risk event. Insurance, there's nothing predictable about your death, at least in the very, very short term. And, and so that is a very straightforward, easy insurance. That's why it's so inexpensive. You know, it's very difficult to fake your death and get the money. Right. Even with the payment. Death is an undesirable event, right? Doesn't matter how much insurance has, you don't want to die. Maybe other people want you to die, right? That whole worth more dead than alive thing. But in general, aside from a few sensational cases, it's very hard to fake your own death and collect the insurance. That's the purest form. So now let's back off a level and talk about car insurance. Now, car insurance, not quite as good as life, right? Car insurance is not a single event. It's not only if you total your car. 
But if your car is stolen, if it's flooded, if it's wrecked, if there's a fire, um, but relative to everything that can happen to your car, it's still very narrow. It's still either loss or trauma, right? If you need an oil change, not covered. You know, you need uh, transmission work, not covered. You need your engine rebuilt, not covered. New tires, not covered. So there's a multitude of things that can happen to your car. Car insurance covers only a very narrow band. Now, it's still, it's not quite as pure as life insurance, right? You might still want the insurance money, um, even though your car's still around. It, you know, that it's not, it, it, if car insurance were exactly like life insurance, it would only kick in if your car was totaled. So we know that you, they don't have to total your car in order to give you a payment. So it's not quite the same as death and life insurance. What happens if we back off? Another level, and we talk about disability insurance, now you get into some real troubles because it, it's if you're disabled and you have disability insurance, in some ways, you know, in certain situations, you might, you know, if you just don't want to work anymore and you want to get a bunch of money for sitting around, you know, disability claims are far more money. They take far more paperwork. You need far more signatures from far more experts because there's been lots of evidence of fraud and disability insurance. If you say you can't walk or your back hurts, who's to dispute that? You know, you have to have doctors that sign off on x-rays that are abnormal or physical findings or someone has to, you know, a physician has to sign an affidavit that says you're disabled. And then even after the fact, they will continue to follow you. I've even heard stories of disability insurance, you know, hiring detectives to go and, and, and follow people who said they were disabled and couldn't walk or couldn't do something. Um, and there's been stories of people who successfully faked a claim, but the detective caught them, you know, riding a mountain bike, even though they had hurt their back or, or, you know, said they couldn't walk or something like that. So disability gets far muddier. And then we have health insurance which doesn't satisfy any of these criteria. It's not a single event. It's not an undesirable event necessarily. Uh, it's not one payment. It's a series of payments. You continue to pay premiums. <clears throat> and as we will discuss, um, that health insurance increasingly as the decades have passed have covered non-risk events. And once you have insurance covering non-risk events, you now have a huge problem with insurance as a model to finance healthcare. We'll pick it up in segment four. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. 
Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Thanks for sticking with us all the way through. Dr. Mike Karuchak here with you on the Docs for Patient Care Foundation microphone talking about all that is good and bad in healthcare policy. Uh, we had already discussed a lot of topics during this show, including our, our run-up uh, to a 17-month project leading up to the 2024 presidential election and had, dis- and had covered some sort of front-end thoughts, <clears throat> excuse me, going in rules of engagement, uh, if you will. And and I was going to finish out that topic in the last segment, but I had some things happen to me today at work that have driven me nuts. And so I think it's time for another rant. Uh, Dr. Hal has a talent for doing rants, and uh, I'm going to try to do one myself here because some things have gone on today as, as part of my workaday world that are driving me nuts. So before I share all of this with you, um, let me give you a little bit of background information that you need to know to understand my anger, my angst here, if you will. Uh, number one is, in addition to being a full-time practicing doctor in my practice, uh, I'm also the managing partner of the Central 8 group of docs, and I am the compliance officer for the entire 20-doctor network. And in those two roles, I get a lot of administrative stuff to do, including what happens with our health information technology, uh, as well as a bunch of other topics. And the health IT, this is the other thing you need to know, is is one of my big topics of emphasis. I've been doing information technology. I was doing the math before I started the segment here. Uh, Almost 50 years, 48 years I've been working with information technology in some form or fashion and have worked in health information technology for almost 20 years. So I've been at it a while, probably longer than most people who do health IT as a full-time career. So I get a lot of these problems um, laid at my feet to try and help and solve. And today, uh, the entire lunch hour plus another 30 minutes on top of that was devoted to some real episodes of frustration. So a, a little more background, right? This all started, right? The health information technology movement was forced upon us in 2009, not with Obamacare. Everyone thinks that health IT technology legislation was in Obamacare. It wasn't. It was, it was in the um, the uh, rescue, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was before Obamacare, that had a lot of the bailouts and a lot of the things that happened with the uh, economic crisis that was going on back then. Uh, but uh, this was kind of buried in it, and it was a program called Meaningful Use. And the idea of this program was to basically, in stages, force health information technology into healthcare before it was ready. And it caused all kind of disastrous problems. It was a mess. 
the products were terrible, it didn't matter because we were forced to buy them. So there was no incentive to make the products any better. And it was really a pity because we had done, we had had our electronic medical record about four or five years before Meaningful Use came along, right? Meaningful Use went live in 2009, I think, uh, doing that off memory. And we started with our, the clinical part of our electronic medical record system in 2005. So we had a four year head start on Meaningful Use. We were doing IT when nobody was forcing us to do it. We believed in it. We had a vision. That, that it could do really good things for healthcare. And for four years, we did great. And then Meaningful Use came along and ruined it for everybody, including us. So we have four years of non-meaningful use health IT compared to all the time afterwards where it was forced on us. So I think I'm in a pretty good position to compare. So fast forward a few years. When we had our EMR 17 years, right, 2005 to 2022, uh, the EMR was getting a little old. Uh, it was getting a little long in the tooth. It was still using sort of 1990s user interfaces. Uh, the vendor had done some updates, but not any fundamental ones. And we decided, along with my participation and blessing, that we would upgrade to a 21st century system. And we did. We moved from one of the major players in the early years to one of the major players in later years. And it was definitely an upgrade. There are some things that are better, right? We went from the old-fashioned log on to the server, log on to the program kind of thing to something that runs as an app on your phone and all of your information is in the cloud, right? We don't have beige box servers hiding in a server farm anymore. We don't have to buy those anymore. We don't have to maintain those anymore. We are no longer fully responsible for the security. So there is a data breach. The fundamental responsibility falls on the vendor who's hosting the servers and not us. And so there was a lot of things that we expected to be better that are actually better in defense of the newer systems. But there are some other things that are maddening, and some of them are are very concerning, I fear. Um, and these fall into two categories, and we wrestled with both of these in recent days, including today. Um, the first is how a medical practice handles test results. Right. Two broad categories. One is when you order a CAT scan or an X-ray or an ultrasound or some sort of medical imaging, basically the way the workflow goes is I decide it's needed. The doctor decides something is needed. Uh, the staff generates an order. Uh, the order goes to the imaging facility. The imaging facility schedules the patient, does the study, gets the radiologist to interpret it, and sends the results by some method back to us. So the old-fashioned way with paper charts was that this was all done by fax. We'd fill out a form by hand, fax it to the radiologist. They would get the study done, read it, and fax us back a result. And you say, well, gosh, that's horrible. Fax technology is awful, but it's reliable. It works. And it's it, it doesn't let you down. It doesn't. It's very simple. A piece of paper goes in their end, and a piece of paper comes out our end. And yes, do faxes get lost? Certainly they do. It's not perfect, but at least we understood what we're dealing with. Now, as part of the electronic medical records movement, all of the the do-gooders in health IT, the people who think they know more about medicine and patient care than we do, said, "No, no, no, that's terrible. We need to go to complete automated electronic." transfer of documents. The order needs to be sent electronically. The results need to be sent back electronically. And on paper, to make a lousy pun, that looks good. 
except the process becomes so complicated that it fails in many steps. And when it does, the the tracking is lost inside the EMR because it's so complicated. And as a result, uh, we run a risk of of the results not getting to us when they need to get to us. And so today's lunch was dealing with results that come into the system and then just kind of disappear. And if you, you can find them, if you know where to look, but it's a, it, it's worse than paper was. And, you know, the fear is, of course, that, you know, a result that, that is very important to the patient's well-being gets lost and there's a delay in, in, in delivering that care. And, uh, and that's a very concerning thing for us. Uh, but it, it's a lot more complicated and there are far more potential points of failure under the current electronic scheme than there was in the old days. Even when we had our EMR in the early years, we were still faxing orders and results back and forth. And so at least, you know, that piece of the system was running reliably and it just felt safer. And I believe that it is safer. Now we have something where we're forced to use the system. There's no more faxing anymore. And so now it, it, it gets entangled in your workflow enough to disrupt things, but not enough to actually make it work reliably enough that you feel confident about it. So make no mistake. I mean, you would think, you would hope that 10 years after the full implementation of meaningful use, that the products would have gotten good enough to make most of these problems go away. And in fact, that's not the case. Um, all we've done is substitute new problems for old ones. And every time that happens, every time old problems go away and new problems replace them, that's a bad thing. I'd rather have the old problem. And you know why? Because I understand the old problem. I know where the failure points are and I know how, how to, how to deal with that. I know what to expect. And you might say, well, that's dumb, Dr. K. Why don't you just train your staff to do it right? And you say, well, that's fine, except that we have the same labor problems that everywhere else in the economy has. And so we have turnover. So about the time you mightily rise to the task and train everybody, um, six weeks later, 10%, 15%, maybe 20% of the staff's already turned over. And now those people are all untrained. And so it's a monumental task to track. It's a monumental task to keep up with. And if you think that it's getting better because of technology, think again. Some things get better. Some things don't. The second issue has to do with something that I've always talked about in health information technology. And we're really grappling with this brand new problem. And it has to do with the same concept that I have been talking about behind this microphone off and on for almost 10 years, right? June 12th of this month in a few days is the ninth anniversary of this program. Been talking about it the whole time. When humans and technology interact, the results more often than not are not fully predictable. Now, what do I mean in 2023 when I say that? Maybe you've read about this, maybe you haven't, but now patient portals 
have become practical enough for a lot of patients to use. What's a patient portal? Well, in the case of going to get an x-ray, if you go, your doctor sends you to a local imaging facility to have your CAT scan done, let's say. Well, the old in the old method, the results just went to your doctor. Then the patient didn't have access to them until you went to your doctor and had the results reviewed. And that was safe because then we could interpret those results. Now with portals, the patients can get their results before we do. And that has been a disaster when that has happened. And one of two things often occurs. The first is if the study is normal, then the patient cancels their appointment. They came in to review their CT results. Now they can go and, and read the report online and you think, well, that what's the big deal? If it's normal, why do they need to come back in? You know, you might even accuse me of being a control freak. You might say, well, you just want control of those patients. You want control of the information. You are old fashioned. You are archaic. Uh, you want them to come in so you can charge them for another visit. Well, my answer to that is this. It is my responsibility as the physician to for their health their outcome their care outcome is my responsibility and as long as it's my responsibility i need to have control over that process the second thing that's happening is patients are reading their results and if they're positive or they look like they might be positive they freak out and that's no good either because they may be freaking out over something that looks like it might be cancer but if i can interpret it in context then maybe the news isn't so bad but they're going to spend some sleepless nights waiting until they come back in and patients are getting upset for no reason because again you give patients these results they don't get access to it you know what i ran out of time way too fast you've been listening to the doctor's lounge on america's web radio we'll see you next time the views opinions and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on america's web radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station you're listening to america's web radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com thank you for listening